This is The Guardian. Just a warning, some of the language in this podcast may not be suitable for younger ears. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hello friends, I'm just finishing up breakfast and getting ready to go out and sit and share some food in a kitchen with Nish Kumar. Breakfast today is um, two boiled eggs mashed into a bowl with a bit of salad cream uh, with some toast. It's basically the breakfast of a toddler. Nish. Now, Nish has been on the comedy circuit since the mid-noughties. I think he's steadily become one of the most recognisable faces in UK comedy. He's a very strong panel show guest uh, on things like Mock the Week. He also did Live at the Apollo and he's known for hosting The MASH Report. Always comes across to me as a very slick focused person who has his life completely together. Anyway, we are going to have a lovely afternoon chatting together. Okay, one more bite and I'm out the door. Bye. Hello, Nish Kumar, and welcome to Comfort Eating. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Grace. Thank you for having me. Someone told me that despite the fact that you are, you know, you're quite big time now, right? You're a pretty recognisable man, must be making a lot of money, but you still wear clothes until they fall to pieces. That's correct. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> I thought correct. you were going to argue with no, me. No, no, I have okay. not. <laughs> what is the oldest piece of clothing that you're wearing today? Uh, probably my jeans. I only wear those jeans now. But since all the big comedy money's been coming in, have you went out and bought something, you know, ostentatious? Do you do you have a suit that you put on? And I last time I was touring, I thought oh, I might be nice to buy a nice suit. But to be totally honest with you, I'm like Elvis, like late period Elvis <laughs> on stage. The amount of sweat that I go through, like eventually I will just oh. have to have one of those like 
white suits made for me. The rhinestones it, split yeah. to the navel. Yeah. Um, I actually thought I was going to get some pushback on that question. Okay, I'm no, going to... No, listen, Grace, I, let's describe then, for the listener what I'm wearing. I'm for wearing the listener. A, I'm wearing a T-shirt that I bought at the uh, NBC gift store in 30 Rock. Okay. Uh, that's an outline of Ron Swanson from Parks and Recreation. It's kind of yellow. I mean, it was yellow at one point. It, it's definitely, definitely supposed to be yellow. I'm wearing Simpsons Vans. I'm basically <laughs> dressed like what a 12-year-old boy imagines they will dress like when they have the power of what they can wear every day. Each week, I get to taste my guest's favourite comfort food dish. Now, this is the thing that you love to eat alone, but it isn't necessarily something that you would uh, be proud to share. What have you brought for me today? Do you want me to get it out now? Well, Grace, I've bought you... <laughs> listen, you asked for it. I asked for it. I asked for it. Go on. I have bought chips uh, with chicken shawarma meat and hummus that I lump together in a big horrible soup and that is the thing that I eat when nobody is looking. I am absolutely not disgusted with you. I'm proud of oh, you. that's I'm good. I'm proud of that's you actually on good. so many levels. Right. <laughs> so it's chips, shawarma meat, yeah. and hummus. Now, hummus to me is the random factor here because I'm not saying that I don't like hummus, but with that, I would want like a garlicky sauce or some kind of chili sauce or something like that. Hummus feels like it's from a completely different, like, but I, go on. Listen, I cannot tell you. I oh my eat God, hummus. Absolutely amazing. Straight, I eat hummus straight out of the tub. Like it's a weird chickpea soup. But it's, <laughs> it, it's mm. something that I absolutely um, love. And for the benefit of the listener, this is your... Uh, your common and garden plastic tray. No, no, what's it? Polystyrene tray uh, full of... Now, it is chicken. I just don't know what part. Uh, it's never good to think about what part. <laughs> about 10 years ago, when I was living in a house share with a couple of my friends, we used to refer to it as chicken ass. Yeah. Because there's no way there's not some ass in there. There's, there's absolutely no way. There. Is this a fairly good representation of how you like it? This is just, to me, this is just a load of chips with the meat mixed in. It's that kind of grey brown meat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just stirred through it. Mm. I've said before that with restaurants, you know, obviously I'm a restaurant critic. I love going to posh places, but to me, a polystyrene carton of chips like this yeah. is happiness. And yeah. to me, I would have it with curry sauce. Oh, yeah. Like, Chips, curry sauce. With me, with the way it's served now, it's a little bit bland. I'd like vinegar yeah, on sure. it. Vinegar, salt, hot sauce. Well, as a mm. connoisseur of chicken ass meat, hummus and chips, let me tell you, this is very solid stuff. This is really, this is, this mm. is made by someone who knows what they're doing. And what they're trying to do is kill me from a heart attack in five years. <laughs> This is someone who has made a plan and is executing the plan. What a way to go, though. <laughs> Do you know but something? He died as he lived, full was, of chips. Was he wearing the rhinestone suit? <laughs> with his belly button just slightly, <laughs> slightly showing. You've described the school-age niche as, and I quote... A smart-ass piece of shit. 
Um, is that true? Is yeah, that that's just... a double quote. Is You're that... quoting me and I'm quoting from my school reports. Yeah. Do you think that being a smart-ass piece of shit, does that help you in your world today? Well, I think the thing with me was that I was just, I was just always in trouble at school, but only because... Whenever somebody tells me to do something, my first instinct is always, why? I'm not mm. going to do it. And then you have to take a second and you go, the doctor is just advising you to take this medicine. Like this. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. But when I was at school and my teacher would be like, can you do this work? I'd be like, no. That's why I think I try and use phrases like rebellious spirit, but I continually return to the phrase, smart-ass piece of shit. This is it. I often think rebellious, and then I think, am I just a dickhead? Yeah. <laughs> just a dickhead, aren't I? Yeah. Um, Watch Rebel Without a Cause back now as an adult. <laughs> You're like, this man's a dickhead. He's just a dickhead. You grew up in Croydon. Correct. With your mum and your dad. Correct. And your younger brother, who Correct. sounds like a lively person, your younger brother. He, the interesting thing is, he's become a very nice adult. When yeah. he was a little kid, I was very, like, happy to be left alone and I would read books and you could just sort of leave me in a corner. And he was just this, like, Tasmanian devil of just chaos. And obviously now when people meet him, they can't square that because now he's, like, he's also incredibly tall. And we look alike, so I sort of look like he's looking into a funhouse mirror like, which has, like, squashed him and distended him. And he's, like, this, like, tall, very respectable-looking gentleman. Sounds actually quite fit as well, actually, the way that you're you're describing him. People often he... refer to him as your handsome brother. <laughs> Friends of mine refer to him That's as your cold. handsome brother, which is cold. My mum calls him the normal one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But like when you were growing up, so there's your mum and your dad and your brother and you in the house. Were you yeah. a close family? Did you get on really well? Yeah. I mean, we all got on well. Uh, we were a close family. I would say we're still a close family now. I, I speak to my mother every day. Yeah. Um, because um, if I don't, the uh, police will show up at my house. <laughs> if, if I don't make some form of contact with my mother once every 24 hours, there will be a SWAT team. Do you run everything past her? Not career stuff. I don't really run past her because if I, I think it, they find my career quite stressful. And so I try and only run things past them at the point where, at the point where they're going to read about it in the papers. Yeah. <laughs> I think if I told them every single thing that was going on, that would be too much information. Yeah. And they would find it quite stressful. Do you know what's really strange? As you started to talk about your parents, you've become more childlike. And yeah. I can see that you, they really worry about you. Because they, they you are actually, there's, there's something strange about sitting talking to you because you are very slick on television and very adult and yeah. like often like the straight man yeah. on the MASH report. Yeah, you kind yeah. of, you keep that face and you're like the safe pair of hands. Yeah. But, I've been with you for 10 minutes. You're not like that. Carnage. Absolute I wouldn't, chaos. I absolutely wouldn't trust you to like water plants. <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. I feel like, I, I feel very seen. <laughs> or like, you know, if I gave you a letter to post on the way home, that I don't think it's going to get no, there. of course it's not. It would be in the bottom of your bag. I'm genuinely amazed that you've managed to pick all of this stuff up because 
my parents will be thrilled listening to this because this is the kind of thing where they're like, yeah, we've been saying this for years. So you have a very small family in Croydon. Yeah. But then when you go to Leicester. Correct. There's a big family and your granddad had restaurants. Yeah, my grandfather was an accountant for a long time and then he just decided he'd had enough. And he ran, from the time that I was born, I think, he ran Indian restaurants in Leicester. He had one, I can never remember which order it is. One was called a Raj and the other one was called a Taj. So he did those two. And then he sort of lived, I guess, the dream of the integrated immigrant because he had two Indian restaurants. And then when he retired, he was running a greasy spoon. He would get these enormous Christmas decorations for the calf. Yeah. And he would then bring, we would spend holidays in Leicester, especially Christmas, we, me and my aunt and uncle and cousins and my uncle would all sort of descend on, you know, my grandparents lived in a sort of two and a half bedroom terrace yeah. in Leicester. And somehow we would sleep, what was it, eight, 10, 11 of us, we'd sleep 11 of us in a two bedroom with a single bedroom study thing we'd all managed to sleep in there. It's like the Godfather when they say go to the mattresses. That's what it was like because there would be, there would truly be mattresses everywhere in all the corridors and the communal spaces. There'd just be mattresses up because like my grandparents used to sleep in their bed and me and my cousin used to sleep on single mattresses that we'd slot <laughs> either side of their bed and there wasn't any other floor space. So if I could take you back right now to Leicester, to that house, and there's like 12, 11 people yeah. all on mattresses. They've gone to the mattresses. Yeah. What's cooking? Well, my grandmother w is an incredible cook. Mm. And even now, if I'm going home, she's like, oh, I fried some fish for you. There's like a sort of Indian style of fried fish where she'll like fry oh. sardines or she'll make me a very traditional Kerala fish curry. Oh. And it's, I mean, it's so good. My mum keeps saying, like, I just don't know how she's still doing it. You need to write it down. Just go and ask her. <laughs> I know, but it's that's the most interesting thing about it. When you talk to her about it, she never knows the exact... She would never be... She would never say to you, you need one cup of this, half, mm. whatever it is. If you ask her how much you put in of everything, she says enough. And so everything is done by, like, instinct and this sort of learned knowledge it's it's her food is genuinely incredible and when she used to cook more i mean she used to cook like a whole christmas dinner and then pork curry for my dad and my uncle because yeah. and this is a direct quote if we eat that turkey it will block us up for a month <laughs> so we used to have truly a full traditional <laughs> christmas dinner and then there would be like pork curry and then when we would go in the summer, my grandfather bought this like huge barbecue and my grandmother used to marinate tandoori chicken. And I think, to be honest, if I had to like pick one like comfort food from my childhood or definitely like the food that I really associate with that house, it's tandoori chicken on the barbecue. And my grandmother would like marinate it for 24 hours in advance and then bring out this enormous bowl with just these sort of like lightly pink chickens that had been marinated in the tandoori spices and then loads of yogurt mm. and then it would just go on the barbecue yeah and, that and smell. oh yeah it's like it's i can smell it almost immediately <laughs> it's the most evocative food mm. of that time 
So Indian food played a big part in your childhood. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining that there must have been a lot of fast food options in Croydon. Did you and your brother have a favourite? Well, for me and my brother, there were two levels of treat you could get us. The mid-level was chicken nuggets from McDonald's with barbecue sauce. But the real big treat was Pizza Hut. Like For us, <laughs> someone who is a similar age to me said, you know, we really lived through the golden age of Pizza Hut. <laughs> it was, I'm 35, and I really think... The stuffed crust at Pizza Hut, I still believe that to be one of the great technological innovations of our time. I really don't know how they got the cheese in there. I don't know what the process was. <laughs> I, I feel like the word game changer was invented because people had to adequately describe what the stuffed crust meant. And then there was a point where they started wrapping the cheese in pepperoni, I think, at some stage. But, yeah. you know, by then they'd gone mad with power. But the period that I'm talking about is when you had, you're talking about, here's the things, stuffed crust pizza... That buffet, which was like <gasps> four quid for all you can eat or something, the key thing was just eat as much as you can, as quickly as you can, and then feel very ill. And then when they brought in the ice cream factory, I mean, for somebody with a genetic <laughs> predisposition towards type 2 diabetes, I was really playing fast and loose with my own genetic inheritance when that thing came along. If me and you and your uh, really fit brother were going to Pizza Hut... <laughs> <laughs> what would we have? What's your order? What's your go-to order? I mean, there was a pizza that they used to do when I was a kid called the Ultimo Combo, which I think was a sort of like, I definitely remember feeling a, a huge amount of angst when I saw Babe Pig in the City because I'm pretty, mo I'm pretty sure that pizza was most of Babe. Yeah. Parceled up and thrown into various spice mixes. And so we would eat, yeah, we'd have the Ultimo combo with a stuffed crust and then just go absolutely hog wild on the ice cream factory. It's the idea that you can actually go up and make your own Sunday. Like, I think that is the ultimate childhood experience. I think that parents spend so much money trying to take their kids on these amazing things. Euro Disney instead of bankrupting themselves. It's just it's the ice cream. It's the word factory. Yeah, it's the word factory. I don't. It, it is testament to the pervasive influence of capitalism that even our ice cream has to be coloured by industrial <laughs> manufacture. Like we still have to bring some element of like working class suffering even into this ice cream. Yeah. It was basically like Steve Jobs looked at Willy Wonka and was like, yeah. "We can take this one step further." Do you think that your parents had a good time? I think that my parents enjoyed how much we were enjoying ourselves, but I imagine it was torture. Yeah. I wouldn't say that my parents were thrilled by the pizza, but I would say they had a good time watching how good a time we would have. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
So you began gigging during your time in Durham Uni's comedy company, the Durham Review, it was called. And then in your 20s, you moved to West London. Your housemates and social circle included Ed Gamble, Rose Matafeo, and others who now make up UK comedy's most successful squad. It sounds incredibly glamorous to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, have I said something funny? Oh my God. Take me back to this flat that you lived in uh, with the the cream of UK comedy. Did you cook together then? We cooked together, and I'm doing air quotes around together. What I mean by that is Ed cooked and I would often be there. Once we had a party. <laughs> is, Ed a, is Ed a cook? Ed, Ed is a fantastic cook. I mean, once we had some people over and Ed made pulled pork and like did the whole thing with the rub and like yeah. slow cooked it for ages. And he left me in charge of bread rolls. And I actually got taken off bread duty because he, <laughs> said, that my, that. he said that my slicing was inadequate and he removed me from bread duty. So I got... Um, I mean, we had a great time in that flat because I'd worked for years. So like- Doing what? Like so many different jobs. I was an office temp for years. The difficult thing about stand-up is that when you start, you're essentially signing up for an unpaid apprenticeship with no fixed end. So for some people, they get work very quickly. And for some of the rest of us, you have to spend an amount of time where you're not earning anything from stand-up. I couldn't do bar work because it was at night, so that's out. Also, you can't even slice a bread roll. Yeah, I I don't know what bar. I'd get fired from Cheers. Like, (laughs) it would have been a disaster. But I just had a string of office temp jobs. I I would do anything as long as I could get out at five. Mm. And it wasn't particularly taxing because, you know, some of the more extreme things I've done include like taking a coach back from Leeds overnight, going home, having a shower, and then going straight to work. Like I've done, you know, I remember once I did a gig in Cambridge and got the train, like a late train back and like slept for an hour and then had to go to work. And so there was this period when I was doing both of those things. And then when I moved in with Ed, it was around the time. I had one year where I was working two or three days a week. And then I got rid of all my day jobs. Were you partying quite a lot in that flat? Ed and I talk about this quite a lot now. And I think if he and I drank in the volume and with the frequency that we did when we were 21, we would both have long expired. Yeah. <laughs> like, we, when we, you know, when you're, when you're 20, 21, you don't think anything of it. You no. know, we, when we were at university, we were writing sketch shows and we would work all day and then we would just go straight to the pub Mm. and we'd be there until one or two in the morning but 21 is a sweet spot isn't it where you can just drink and then you can literally have a strategic vomit yeah (laughs) and then just carry on and you get up in the morning and feel like hell but then you have something to eat and you're fine and then you suddenly like i I used to have a the sausage and bean bake from greg's i used to have sausage and bean bake oh and then within half an hour you're absolutely now it's like a hangover for me now in my mid-30s is this kind of, it's a sort of day-long, you know, Werner Herzog movie. <laughs> just it's lying so there, dark Just lying, kind of breathing, just sweating alcohol and thinking existential, <laughs> doom-laden thoughts. So it was uh, Greg's sausage 
bake again. No idea how they do it, but sausage, cheese, and bean, and then they bake that. And we used to eat that, but we just used to eat just so much shit. Mm. And also, we used to drink Guinness. Like that was particularly for Ed and me. Tom Neenan, who is a great comedian and comedy writer and who I still work with today, it was also in the same sketch group with us. And he used to call me and Ed the one more boys because we, neither of us had the capacity. We, it would always escalate. And often Nina would get dragged into it, but it would always escalate into and culminate in one more yeah. at 11pm, which would then turn into three more. Are you a one more boy now? I'm less of a one more boy now. I've still got it in me. Yeah. I've still absolutely got it in me. I was reading that you said that during that period of your life, talking about mental health, things got a bit spicy, oh, <laughs> which that, I think yeah. is a wonderful way of saying <laughs> things. But go on, please explain. I, it's just a time that everybody who does a sort of, I think probably everyone who does any job, but certainly everyone who does it through a creative job goes through a period where it's the bit that gets skirted over a lot in mm-hmm. people's autobiographies. For me, it was like sort of five solid years in my mid-20s where I was just in a cycle of being drunk and hung over mm-hmm. and you do feel like you've bought a bunch of magic beans. Yeah. Because if you t- if you tell people I'm a comedian and I'm doing comedy and they say, what what else do you do? And you're like, well, I also have an office job five days a week. And they say, why? And you say, because I literally make no money from it. Mm. it you really feel like this guy sold me these beans and he yeah. seemed cool. Yeah. And you can feel really delusional. Did people worry about you when you were like that? Yeah, friends of mine definitely worried about me. Uh, Tom Neenan and his now wife, Ali, got married two years ago and I was best man at the wedding. And it, you know, when you're writing the speech, you want to talk about how important these people have been in your life and you don't want to bum the audience out. <laughs> so one of the things that I was trying to do was like, because when do you get to say nice things about your friends mm-hmm. in that sort of context, was trying to walk the line of not spoiling everyone's fun time, but also acknowledging and thanking them for being quite supportive of me at a difficult period. And I certainly think there are stories, there are stories that Tom and Ali find less funny than other people. <laughs> yeah, because they saw yeah, you because, at absolute rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. And they were sort of, you know, they were certainly concerned about me um, in that in that period. You met your girlfriend, Amy Annette, Indeed. during what we're calling the spicy period. Correct, yeah. How did life change then? Did she come in and change things as women sometimes do? She, I'll tell you what, what, it is, what the biggest thing is. The biggest thing is if you are in a relationship with somebody, there is some scrutiny on you. Mm. And I think as soon as there is some scrutiny on you, it forces you to think, well, why am I doing this? But the biggest thing that she did was she was just like, why don't you just calm down? (laughs) Like that was, it wasn't like she, there wasn't like a montage where she like bought me better suits. It was literally the biggest thing she did was just say, why don't, why are you so so wound up all the time? You've been together for nine years now. Do you have a favourite comfort food that you eat together? I mean, listen, we are gourmands. We enjoy eating out. We enjoy eating at the best restaurants London has to offer. 
our like default treat is Nando's. And it's Ain't no shame. I mean, it's absolutely it's absurd. Right. So when I'm on tour, when last time I was on tour, my support acts, all of them, by the end were like, This it's too much Nando's. This this is this is this is an illness now niche. <laughs> It's just when you when you're touring and you need something quick and you need to know exactly what you're eating. So you walk into Nando's, but you're not allowed a menu. Yeah. What are you ordering? Well, first of all, when I walk into Nando's and like, have you been to Nando's before? I'm like, look at my body shape. Look at my body type. Have I been to Nando's before? Do do I own the original Star Wars trilogy on Blu-ray? Yes. Um, but there's even there's a peri peri stain on my t-shirt. Not sir. my first time at the rodeo, babes. I wish it was. Um, immediately, my standard order, I've got two standard orders and it depends what I'm doing with that evening. Okay. If it's before a gig, I used to have, and they've got rid of it, the super grain salad. And I'm furious they got rid of it. It was an excellent salad. See, I'm sensing that you're not hitting carbs because you don't want to be sleepy. Yeah, I don't want to be sleepy. I don't want to be sleepy so, yeah, and I don't want to it. feel on stage. I don't want to feel my meal in the middle of my chest also you're getting a superfood salad because you're a rock star <laughs> and you want need to balance your uh, zen or something to you it's quite good as paltro it's quite good that's the closest i get that's poop my uh line of that's wellness it. brand yeah <laughs> and then i have half a chicken extra hot and what I've, they've now started doing is the vusa which is one of their other hot sauces they started marinating the chicken in vusa and it's delicious what is your, I'm out with Amy on a night out. I don't have to go on stage. Elvis is in the building. <laughs> <laughs> what do you order there? It's like my um, my two orders are my Ed Sullivan Elvis and my Vegas Elvis. Yeah. So yeah. my Ed Sullivan Elvis is the salad and the chicken. And then my Vegas Elvis, half a chicken hot, creamy mash, coleslaw, the hummus and the pita. Because whatever that peri drizzle is, I mean, I could drink that. I'd happily Absolutely. drink that. And then the olives. Again, I don't know what they do to the olives. Where the olives are insane. The olives are very good. The yeah. olives are soft and they're plump. Yeah. You know what I like doing? This is really disgusting. Oh, go on. I put ketchup in the coleslaw. Oh, it's filthy. It's disgusting. <laughs> but it's so good. <laughs> I put. I, I cover the chicken. I can't in, look at you. I have like a system. My... <laughs> Friends, my friend's obsessed with it. I have like a system where I cover the mash in the garlic sauce. Okay, you've got a system. Yeah, I've got a system. I cover the mash in the garlic, then I get extra hot sauce on the chicken, and then I put the wild herb sauce mm -hmm. in the coleslaw, and then put ketchup in the coleslaw, and then I'm ready to eat. You know this idea that. I don't. I don't. I didn't mean to say it like that because that sounds like it's not correct. You know this accurate observation that I am a completely shambolic man who can't be trusted to water plants. When I go into Nando's, I become. <laughs> I have the precision of a serial killer. When I'm in Nando's, I'm like the talented Mr. Ripley. It is. If I could approach the rest of my life with the diligence and precision that I approach seasoning my Nando's. Oh my god. I would be absolutely unstoppable. Before I let you go, um, <laughs> do you know something? I've had so much fun um, and I could just carry on and on and on, but I'm going to ask you, 
your comedy, you know, it does rile a lot of people up. And then you get a lot of stick these days for being this like woke, lefty, (laughs) liberal. In fact, you were, and I think a lot of people know about this, you were pelted with a bread roll and booed (laughs) off stage uh, for making jokes about Boris Johnson and Brexit, a cricket function. So your comedy, it doesn't shy away from the political. Is being divisive difficult? Does Is that something that kind of, does it upset you? Or do you enjoy being divisive? I don't think I get pleasure from upsetting people. Mm. But I do, I would rather upset people than hold back with the work that I'm doing. I care more about saying things that I believe in and doing jokes that I'm really passionate about, their upset or disquiet is an unfortunate byproduct mm-hmm. of me doing the stuff that I wanted to do. And so much of the comedy that I liked when I was growing up was Goodness Gracious Me, mm-hmm. Chris Rock, Richard Pryor, The Simpsons. So I think to some extent, all the comedy I liked had a degree of you know, we don't care. Like there's a degree of punk rock to to it, yeah. I guess. And so I guess it's probably not surprising that I'm doing comedy that does rile people up. Uh, yes or no, are you sick of talking about the bread roll incident? No, I'm fine about it. It's, <laughs> it, it's, it's such a funny and weird thing to have happened. Were you upset? No. So at the time I, I wasn't. I thought it was very funny and... I think, you know, they sort of have a right to boo. Mm. I I think throwing things is probably not great. But, you know, ultimately, I've got a right to say what I want. They've got a right to boo. For me, that incident was just everybody using their freedom of speech to express their perspective on it. Where it becomes a problem is the fact that by 7 or 8 p.m. that evening, the Telegraph had a copy of the video. Mm-hmm. And what, once it gets out of the room, it becomes something that you can't control and there's not enough context for what happened. And then you just become... The thing that I resent is being made into a character yeah. in the sort of back and forth of, of whatever the culture war is. I don't really understand what people mean by the phrase culture war. But again, that's because I maybe am... I'm blinkered by my own partisan blinders. But for me, the culture war is some people saying, can you not be racist? And other people saying, we want to be racist, which doesn't seem particularly, it feels like, it feels like the morality of the culture war is very, and I mean this in all terms, black and white. So after all of that, and you saw a caricature of yourself, what is it that people misunderstand about you that you read about yourself well it just the way that that gets written about there's no resemblance to what actually happened and the way that i the things that i mean i told some very mild i cannot emphasize this enough <laughs> very mild jokes corporate yeah it was a, a corporate it was an, also the worst thing about it was it was a charity gig it was an unpaid corporate oh my God. which is the worst of both worlds but it, I told some very mild jokes and I think the thing that I, the only thing I resent is when you read, when you read reports about it and the things that I had said 
bearing no re resemblance to what was actually said. And I also think that, I also think that there's this, obviously this huge blind spot. It's not even a blind spot because it's, that makes it sound like it's not conscious, but there is this huge hypocrisy at work in the way comedy is written about at the moment, because we're constantly told that the problem in comedy is that everybody is too easily offended mm. uh, from a left-wing perspective. And left-wing people are so easily offended and they can't take a joke and that, that it's ruining comedy. But we're also, but then I'm told that I should shut the fuck up. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. to me, it seems like a very evident piece of hypocrisy, but I think those people know what they're doing. You know, they're not, they, it, you're not catching them out by pointing out what they're saying is hypocritical. I think I think the important question here is, did you have a snack when you got in? I, I, I'll be honest with you, I was very drunk. <laughs> <laughs> by the time I got home from bread roll gate. What do you drink? What's your go-to drink when you've been hit by a bread roll by I can't remember. at a cricket I think club? We, we because there were a bunch of comedians there. Greg James was there as Greg well. Greg James was there. Chris Addison was there. John Robbins was there. Tim Key was there. And Tim Key uh, bought me a pint. Like, we, so we, we got out of the venue and they were all sort of with me with this like security detail of the least qualified people to be security in human history. Chris Addison couldn't defend me from a breeze. But we were, you know, we were all laughing about it. And... The first thing that happened was we got to the pub. Tim Key said, sorry, I threw the bread roll. Do you want a pint? <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, I, I, I can't really remember what I ate when I got home, but I suspect it was probably some combination of chicken meat, chips and hummus. <laughs> it was uh, chicken's bottoms <laughs> grated onto some chips. Uh, darling, I'm going to have to wrap this interview up because I've been told that I'm not allowed to just keep the guests in the room for five hours drinking wine with me. Nish Kumar, thank you for comfort eating with me. My pleasure. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Gabriella Jones. The series producer is Leia Green. And the executive producer is Kathy Drysdale. Music and sound design is by Axel Cacoutier. If you like this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review. You can subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. This is The Guardian. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.